Welcome to our space edition of Rebellion's educational series with the living legend, astronaut Mike Mullane. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Alex, and thank you for the invitation. The pleasure is all ours. I mean, you've been to space three times. You've seen everything. You were one of the original space shuttle astronauts. Having you on today is such an honor. Let's jump right in to the awful tragedy of 1986. Please tell us your experience. Yeah, Challenger was lost in 1986. Uh, as you mentioned, I was selected in the first group of space shuttle astronauts, and four of my astronaut crewmates uh, or classmates were, were killed on uh, Challenger, including Judy Resnick. Uh, most people, when they hear a woman's name associated with Challenger, they always uh, mention Krista McAuliffe, the school teacher, but there was a, a female woman astronaut, uh, Judy Resnick, who was also on board that mission, was killed. Her and I flew together on our rookie mission 17 months earlier. So obviously my connection to the to a Challenger was very deep and it and it was like ripping your ripping your heart out to, to see something like that happen. Now, from a mechanical point of view, the reason Challenger occurred is these booster segments, solid rocket boosters, were so large they couldn't and they were made in Utah and they were launched in Florida. Well, they couldn't transport them as a single piece. So they're made in four propellant filled pieces that were then stacked together, bolted together at Florida for launch. Where they bolted them together was a potential leak path for the 5,000 degree gas inside to, to leak outside. So that, that could never happen. So they had these O-ring seals, they call them, uh, that were at these joints to prevent that leakage. Well, those O-rings, uh, there's a faulty design and uh, it resulted in a failure of the, of the O-ring on the right side booster rocket at one of the joints. That fire leaked out caused the destruction of the vehicle 73 seconds into flight, uh, killing the astronauts. So mechanically, that was the cause <clears throat> of Challenger. But if you go deeper into that tragedy, it was really a failure of, uh, team, of teamwork is what it was, uh, because there was evidence of that failure mode that began on flight two. These boosters now, you gotta remember, those things didn't sink in the ocean when they, when they were jettisoned. They had parachutes, they lowered them into the water, they were picked up taken back, cleaned up, and used over again. And so they had an opportunity to inspect the performance of these O-rings on each of these recovered, recovered uh, uh, flights. And beginning with flight two, they noticed that there, were, there was a potential catastrophic failure mode associated with this design. And they had multiple signatures of that throughout uh, the launches that preceded uh, Challenger. Challenger was the 25th launch. So that was beginning, if you look at it, the first indication of a failure mode was four years before Challenger when the boosters recovered from flight two. And now you have 23 more missions before Challenger occurred. So there was a, a significant amount of information that these boosters were gonna fail, but because of a failure of teamwork and reacting to that information, uh, that, that's a, uh, an impossibly long story to talk about here, but it, uh, you can certainly read about it. Uh, but a, a failure of teamwork resulted in this known problem uh, continuing to exist, and ultimately it caused the tragedy of uh, Challenger. And that's what really hurt too is is the fact that it was it was something that could have been prevented had we reacted properly to it at the very beginning when the first first evidence of a failure mode was noted. So heavy bureaucracy essentially was yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's a massive operation. Well, if you really go back and ask the question, why did why was Challenger launched? If you want the root, root answer to that, it was overpromised and underfunded. 
uh, you got to remember how we ended up with the shuttle program. Apollo, the Apollo program cost almost $300 billion in current year dollars to get that, that flag on the moon. And Congress certainly had other things to do with $300 billion. So as the Apollo program was winding up, they were telling NASA, hey, congratulations, you beat the Russians to the moon, great job. But now in the post-Apollo era, you better find a cheaper way to get your astronauts into space because you're not going to have this lavish funding that you had during the space race. So NASA answered that call with a brilliant idea. Let's make the next rocket reusable. It'll fly out of orbit, land on a runway. You can use it over again. That's going to save a bundle of money. And they envisioned that it would be so simple to operate, so cheap and reliable. It would have the reliability of, and the safety, actually, of a high-flying airplane. Uh, they would be able to now launch all of our satellites on this one rocket. So you have economies of scale here, but it required the shuttle to fly and fly often to do that. It, fly, it required uh, 24 flights a year. Basically, a mission every two weeks is what NASA was aimed at. That proved an impossible task to get to with the funding that was available. So you have this, this team, and this happens everywhere, not just in the space program, but in the private world too. You have this team that's under tremendous schedule pressure. They have a problem, and instead of doing what they what they should do at that at that point, whatever what in NASA we had a had documents that, that had designated components that were critical that could never fail, and the O-ring was one of them. So if you see a problem with the O-ring, basically, that's when you stop. You don't continue flights until you understand and fix it. Well, astronaut, where were you mentally? Were you scared of going on the shuttle? Did you get nervous every time you went on? You know? Yes, yes. yes. I tell people I was, uh, Challenger had nothing to do with my fear factor, though. I, I came out of the military uh, flying on, uh, flying uh, as an astronaut, and uh, so I, Military flying is dangerous. Uh, friends died. You saw planes crash. You see, you uh, in Vietnam? I was in Vietnam too. Yeah, from, from the seventy-two to seventy-seven, right? Oh no, uh, in Vietnam I was there in nineteen sixty-nine. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. You started. You start. You became a, uh, an astronaut in seventy-nine, and you were in uh, Vietnam originally. Sixty. So sixty-two. Yeah, sixty-nine. But I was. Uh, military flying is dangerous. So we you know that these high complex airplanes can crash and now you're flying the most complex airplane ever, the space shuttle. So you have a sense that there's a lot of possibilities of failure here, even though there's a tremendous team behind you and a tremendous redundancy in that vehicle. So uh, in the back of your mind, the thing that really though made the shuttle, in my opinion, uh, you know, really did, <laughs> did wait, make a, for a white knuckle ride for me was the fact there was no ejection system on it. There was no escape system on it. Were you more scared on the shuttle than on your military flights? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I tell people, uh, my, I never had the, the anticipatory fear of a combat mission in Vietnam as I had with the shuttle. So nearly uh, 20 years in, com in, in military flights, and you were far more scared on the shuttle. Uh, yes, I was. And the reason is on a military jet, you have an ejection system. No. You, have a, you have a way of bailing out. I, I know it's a false security because obviously the plane could be destroyed in you know, any aircraft fire. Yeah, you have this sense of, of that you can get out of it. On the shuttle, the shuttle was thought from redundancy and testing that it would be as reliable as a, as a 747, and you don't put escape systems on a 747, so the rationale is you didn't need them on a, on a space shuttle. Uh, clearly, that was, uh, that was false reasoning. But it was that lack of an escape system that uh, 
it was always in the back of my mind that once you get aboard this vehicle and it launches, and particularly during the launch phase, uh, the early launch phase, when you really feel like something, if something bad's gonna happen, it's gonna happen really quickly, um, you, you realize you have no way of bailing out of this. And that's a very uncomfortable position. Uh, but I, like I say in my book though, is this was a dream come true for me. And this is true for every astronaut. We, it's in our DNA. Uh, if I, 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 in my book, I use the example, if you open up the side hatch of a shuttle 30 seconds before launch and told the astronauts aboard, God called and said, there's a 50-50 chance this vehicle is gonna fail and you're gonna die and you can get off if you want. Nobody's getting off. It's that important to them. Uh, we're identified. We're identified through these space missions. That's a passion. It's something we want to do, and uh, we can't not do it. The analogy is the Everest climbers. You know, these mountain climbers for Everest. They're, I think, I think they're nuts. You know, going putting themselves in harm's way doing this. Uh, but I know what drives them. Their fear is the fear of not reaching the top. Just as astronauts, the fear is not reaching into space, not making the space mission. That it far exceeds for us and for the Everest climbers the fear of death. So that's you read John Krakauer's *In the Thin Air*. I have yes, great um, book. It's a great book, but as a friend of Sandy Pittman's, I can say that there were a lot of uh, false parts to the book, and he does rather put a lot of blame on Sandy in that mission. But uh, blame it's been for the book. since I read it, I don't really recall. The, the blame was, uh, the, the leaders were the ones at fault, which is usually the case in almost every incident. The leaders yeah. are the ones at fault. Now, you know, with the Everest climbers, you have many ways to get out of there. Now with you, you have absolutely nowhere to go. So you have all of this stress that just accumulates throughout the whole mission. But what about the cosmic rays? You know, how hard is it for your body to recover from this mission, mentally, physically? Oh, it, yeah. first of all, you gotta remember, I was only on very short shuttle missions. Uh, there was no International Space Station. So when I was in space, I was aboard a spacecraft that could only stay up for a week or two. So my longest mission was just six days. Oh, six uh, days in space sounds like uh, forever to me. <laughs> well, it isn't. Uh, so the effect on my body was pretty limited. Uh, I, we do get uh, more radiation, but we, we work under OSHA rules. We wear dosimeters and they tell us, hey, we can't get any more radiation, lifetime radiation than somebody working in a nuclear power plant or a nuclear submarine. So, uh, you know, OSHA rules apply. And is it possible, though, that, uh, <clears throat> that we could get hit by a cosmic ray that could ultimately cause cancer 30 years later? Yeah, I guess it is. Um, there, there's that possibility. And NASA, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> NASA tracks astronauts' health after we retire to see if there are indications that, that they need to do something to better protect astronauts, uh, looking at cancers and other type of, type of issues. But uh, physically, when, when you're up there, it's wonderful, obviously, floating around. Although I tell you, some, some people end up space sick, about half the astronauts end up vomiting uh, for a day or two or even longer. Uh, I was in the lucky half that didn't have that. But uh, once you get back on the ground, even six days into a mission, uh, when I got up from the seat, I felt like I had lead, lead boots on. I felt like an elephant was on my back. felt very heavy and lethargic, a little dizzy. took a couple hours before I felt I could walk without wanting to be close to the wall so I didn't fall. Uh, that went away, though, probably within a couple days. First day I woke up being back on Earth, I felt like I had a lead sheet laying on top of me. Uh, got out of bed, felt, again, very lethargic. But I recovered within a 
certainly within a week, my body was back to being an earthling. Now, these people are up on the International Space Station for months and even a, a years, and Russians have exceeded the year. Uh, that has got to be a longer uh, readaptation. That, that would be my guess. But you know what, something that's, uh, that I think is amazing is how adaptive the human body is. Imagine our whole life, all these billions of years, we evolved in one gravity. And you think now taking that gravity away would be, we, we wouldn't be able to live, we wouldn't be able to <laughs> survive. And yet, <clears throat> excuse me, except for a couple, you know, maybe some nausea or something for a couple of days, backache because your spine kind of lengthens up there, the vertebrae. Uh, uh, the discs swell and push the vertebrae higher, and that gives you a, a backache for a couple weeks. Yes, I remember, you know, so we sat down with astronaut Kelly, and, you know, I know his height changed, actually, from being up there. Right, yeah. yeah. But it's amazing to me, though, is the human body adapts so rapidly to such a strange environment from the billions of years of evolution. It's almost as if we were designed to leave Earth. I mean, think about it. it the analogy is, imagine we could stick our head underwater and immediately grow gills. This is a, such an alien environment to be weightless. At that, <laughs> it just blows my mind sometimes to think about how adaptive. We're, we're an organism that happened to grow on Earth. Didn't mean you know we were destined to grow on Earth. We, we I believe, we could have grown on other. Well, planets. we certainly imagine for you know that we could not live in, in weightlessness. Imagine the difficulties then of trying to go to another planet. You'd have to have the old spinning wheel designs to have artificial gravity. Uh, yeah, it just, I, I find it remarkable. That, that Do you want to go to Mars? Pardon? Do you want to go to Mars? Well, if I had one of those transporters on the Star Trek, I'd love to, but I'm not, my personality is not adaptive to the, to the length of a mission to Mars. Right now, a chemical propulsion technology, you're still looking at a better part of three years. Uh, best uh, best speed to Mars is seven months, yep. seven, seven and a half months. Then you got to wait another 20 months for the planets to land, line up again to make that short seven month trip back. Yes. Uh, and so you're looking at the better part of, of three years for a Marsh, Martian trip. And I, I don't have the personality for that. I'm, a, uh, I, I'm an active guy. I go hiking all the time. I love going out in the mountains and nature and and uh, so I know I'd have a difficult time. In fact, I could, I would not be a person for the International Space Station either. I'd love to go to space for maybe a month, and but then I want to be back on Earth. Yeah. So, so I don't have, I don't have a future in the space program. So, what's your opinion on the current space race? Oh, I love it. I love what SpaceX is doing. I mean, it's provided so much excitement to the, to the uh, space program now, uh, getting people interested, uh, seeing all these young people cheering. That's what amazed me when SpaceX pulled off that, uh, you know, those landings coming back and landing on the barge and doing those things. And it's really uh, beautiful. Oh yeah, you look at the audience. Yeah, you look at the audience and you have these thirty-ish people that are twenty-ish people who are just cheering and just so excited and and uh, I I really could identify with them. I've always had a passion for space, as you might imagine. Uh, and just seeing what Elon Musk has done and how rapidly he's done it—that's what I I love. You know, it's. Uh, he just seems to go at light speed with these things. Private enterprise moves faster than the government. Absolutely. There's, uh, there's no question about that. There's no. something the government has to do, has to defend us and, and do these oh. things. Oh, of course. Certain things government must. Uh, yeah, no question. But, but it is definitely uh, the private enterprise is much more nimble than, than the federal, federal government. This has been an awesome show. I want to uh, leave it with a question. What is your favorite all-time space movie? Uh, a favorite would be uh, 
I'd say Apollo 13. You know, I really, really enjoyed that. Wonderful. But, but that's hard. To, that's hard to answer. I, I love the right stuff too. Apollo 13. Uh, I like even the Martian, some of these uh, science fiction movies I enjoyed. You like uh, The Martian with Matt Damon? I'm sorry? You liked The Martian with Matt Damon? Well, I, I, I didn't like the, the ending when they got him with all the I, – I just didn't like the ending. I didn't like the ending in the book. I didn't like the ending. I didn't like the ending either, Astronaut. I agree with you 100%, but I liked most of the movie. Yeah, I did too. You know, it was exciting. Although it's a, it's a giant leap in fi- you know, fiction, obviously. Of course. Uh, got, my wife hates going to movies with me uh, uh, <laughs> that are that are space related because I'm whispering to her, "Oh yeah, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen." You know, so uh, you don't want to go to a to a uh, space movie with Mike Mullane or probably any astronaut at that point. Yeah, you sound like my father. My father's a former speechwriter for Vice President Mondale and a orthopedic and spinal surgeon, so he has a few opinions on movies. And <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet they, I'll bet doctors who watch doctor TV or lawyers who watch lawyer TV, they probably howl in laughter at the at the way they fictionalize things. The last time he did not criticize the movie was 1987 when we watched The Hunt for the Red October. I think that was the last time he 100% approved of a movie. So, Yeah, I, read, I, I love Tom Clancy's books. Loved Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, Apollo 13, was that completely accurate? Do you have any issues I, with that? I read the book and watched the movie extremely accurate. Uh, I, when I watched it, I was looking for errors like maybe – in Mission Control, they'd have a shuttle patch on the yes, wall. Yes, I'd love to know about them if there were. Well, I, I can't remember all of them, but uh, when I was looking, I was looking for technical things, and, and like I said, I was looking for to see a shuttle patch on Mission Control or something like that that they forgot, and I kept watching and watching, and I said, God, that book, that, they had it nailed. I didn't see anything different from, from the book on this. And then right after I watched the movie, I came back, and there was somebody circulating the, the the top 100 errors in the movie. It was written by people who were there at Apollo. For example, they had uh, the guys that were strapping uh, the astronauts into the capsule had Rockwell on the back, the logo for Rockwell. Oh, well, these are rather picky even though. Well, yeah, it was North American, not later acquired by uh, Rockwell. Oh, but I'm more interested in like astronaut Mattingly. Was he as cool as Gary Sinise portrayed? Uh, Mattingly was there. He he was uh, our basically our mentor when we got there as new astronauts. So a uh, brilliant guy, a very brilliant guy. I mean, obviously the personality is a little bit different than Jared Sinise. No, I mean nothing can be the same. But I mean, was he was as brilliant as Matting as Sinise? Oh yeah, he, he was. There's no question about that. The guy was a genius. Oh well, now I'm going to enjoy watching Apollo 13 for the 200th time even more. Well, the thing the thing about uh, Mattingly that we used to used to laugh at is. The guy never seemed to stop. I mean, somebody was saying, you can go down there any time, night or day, any day of the week, and you're going to see the, the light on in his office. And uh, it, it, he was rail thin, too. And somebody was wondering if, uh, if maybe he was actually an alien that had been left here to help us as miserable humans uh, <laughs> with some brain power. You know, that wow. this guy, you know he was... Uh, he, he, that is the coolest rail, thing I've heard in a long time. Yeah, nobody ever saw him take take any time off. That's know? why I do this series. I just want to learn from amazing people like you. It's just, that's this is exactly yeah, what he, he, yeah, he was a great guy. Uh, certainly, uh, I had to laugh though when some astronaut said, "Maybe he's alien. He's been left by the mothership to help us get back, to help us get into space and get to Mars." 
yesterday we had Tom Wolf's daughter on, uh, Alexandra Wolf, an acclaimed Wolf Journal reporter who has been mulling the idea of writing a sequel to The Right Stuff. So let's talk The Right Stuff. Was that movie as accurate to you as Apollo 13 was? Well, I read, I was not there during, yes, the, sir, I guess uh, during that era. Uh, so I read Tom Wolf's book and I watched the movie. I later heard that, uh, that the depiction of, uh, of uh, Jaeger uh, was uh, dramatized. A lot of guys, I, I got the impression, did not like Jaeger. Uh, a lot of a lot of astronauts didn't didn't like him. Uh, and what was wrong with the impression in, in, in Wolf's book? Well, no, I guess I guess they got that right. I guess they got Wolf that made right. him look like a jerk. I did not like uh, Jaeger after. I mean, after reading the book, I felt that Jaeger was a bit of a, a jerk. Well, I you know I didn't know the guy, so I mean, yeah, no, of course, can't really comment on. All I know is from the book and yeah. what I heard from other astronauts that uh, you know he lost, he was uh, he had to bail out of that. Uh, that F-104 test pilot school and had the rocket boost to get this fighter jet up to 100,000 feet plus. And I heard, I heard one of the astronauts said that he really needed to get into that simulator before he took that ride. And, uh, I, again, this is all hearsay. I have no idea how it all went down, but I, I heard that from one of the astronauts saying he did not uh, go into the simulator as he's instructed and, and that contributed to losing that plane, but I, I don't know. Oh. That was all before me, but it certainly matched the book. I mean, the movie and the book went went together very uh, well. The, the, you know, uh, the right stuff for me was uh, absolutely my favorite uh, space book. So my last last question is on uh, Interstellar. Have you seen that movie? I did. I liked it too. I, I really because it's one of my favorite all time movies. I yeah. what what did you not like about the movie? Well. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought all of it. Was, okay. Yeah, I the plot. I I love the the plot where you know the guy wants a human companion and uh, resurrects the. I don't remember the actors involved, the actresses, but uh, re cool. re resurrects that woman out of out of cold storage there, out of hibernation. It is the movie, right? I, I'm talking about the right movie, Interstellar, right? Uh, yeah, Interstellar is. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It's, it's really the one where they're going like a hundred thousand uh, light years off to another planet, and yes. indeed they're, in they're in a hibernation. They have a meteor hit it or an asteroid. Oh, that was Passengers. That was Passengers. Oh, sorry. No, Interstellar oh. is Christopher Nolan. It's with oh. Matthew McConaughey, and it's a story of where Earth is uh, about to be no longer livable. Oh yeah, 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 too bad. yeah. No, I, I wasn't a fan of that one. Sorry, I didn't particularly care for that one. I was curious. That's more, I, I felt that would be more hit or miss with you. Well, that was wonderful. So I was not a fan of that one. Yeah, no, that, that one is a bit out there. Christopher Nolan's much more of a, either you love him or you grow to appreciate him maybe. So Yeah, well, the, the thing about uh, that one, Interstellar, <laughs> is here the Earth's resources are all dried up and you know, he's got the only corn crop in the planet, I guess. I think that's the way it starts out. And here he is chasing a drone, running down all of his corn in a pickup truck. <laughs> I'm thinking, I, I know. Thinking, I know. Yes. That makes no sense. You're destroying your, your crop to chase down a drone. <laughs> that made no sense to me. Yeah. Well, anyway, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, astronaut. I, I really could, I couldn't have been more thankful to have you on today. So awesome. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, thank you, astronaut. Be well and stay safe in these crazy times. You too.